0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On our outstanding panel today, returning to politicology, is a veteran political strategist and tech founder, and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute, Lucy Caldwell. Lucy, it's always wonderful to see you. Good to see you. And making his politicology debut is Mark Ambender. Mark is a professor at USC's Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, where he heads a digital security initiative and an MSNBC columnist. He's also a former politics editor at The Atlantic, White House correspondent for National Journal, contributing editor for GQ, a member of the USA Today National Board of Contributors, and covered politics, policy, and the White House for ABC News and CBS News. Mark, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Wonderful to be here. On today's Roundup, the corporations making their views heard on voter suppression and Republicans' response on what is and isn't allowable corporate free speech, the causes and costs of white evangelicals' resistance to COVID-19 vaccinations, the latest massive leak of personal information for over half a billion Facebook users and what this means for them and what, if any, implications this has for the regulation of big tech. Also... For our Politicology Plus exclusive segment, we'll look at the scam tactics the GOP committees and the Trump campaign used to siphon off their supporters' money at the height of the 2020 campaign. So, let's dig in. Before and after Georgia's anti-democracy bill was signed into law, we saw a cascade of corporations condemning the legislation— And signaling their support for laws that increase, not decrease, access to the polls in Georgia and across the country. So in Georgia, we saw Delta and Coca-Cola among the most prominent Georgia-based companies uh, that voiced opposition. Uh, Notably, though, they waited until after the bill had passed. Uh, we saw Texas-based companies, including American Airlines and Dell and at and issue statements against proposed legislation moving through the Texas legislature currently. And uh, probably most famously, Major League Baseball moved the All-Star Game from the Atlanta Brave Stadium to Coors Field in Colorado. And just for reference, Colorado has universal mail-in voting, election day registration, and other voter-friendly measures. On the GOP response, McConnell, at a press conference in Kentucky, said this.
1: I'm not talking about political contributions. Most of them contribute to both
0: sides. They have political action committees. That's fine. It's legal. It's appropriate. I support that. I'm talking about taking a position on a highly incendiary issue like this and punishing a community or a state because you don't like a particular law that passed? I just think it's stupid. So for context, McConnell issued a written statement after the Citizens United decision, and it said this, for too long, some in this country have been deprived of full participation in the political process. With today's monumental decision, the Supreme Court took an important step in the direction of restoring the First Amendment rights of these groups. And then in another press conference on Wednesday, This week, McConnell walked back his statement saying, I didn't say that very artfully yesterday. They're certainly entitled to be involved in politics. They are. My principal complaint is they didn't read the darn bill. And then we saw Texas Governor Greg Abbott on Fox News on Tuesday say, they need to stay out of politics, especially when they have no clue what they're talking about. And to me, that sounds a lot like give us your money and then sit down and shut up. But Mark, I want to start with you because, you know, just in the last couple of years and especially thinking about how we saw the explosion of mainstream support for Black Lives Matter in 2020, how has the concept of corporate responsibility changed and, and why are corporations choosing to weigh in on these issues more and more now?
1: Corporations are accountable to their employees and to the communities in which their employees live. And it's just much easier now for employees and social movements to impact upon the brains of corporate executives in a way that in prior epochs, politicians could do. They could bend the ear of a corporate CEO. So some of this is just evolution in society. Some of it also is the alienation of conservative elites from corporate elites, which is a phenomenon that helped elect Donald Trump in some sense and is one of the reasons why the Republican majority in the Senate is so afraid about losing their donor base because especially to incoming primary challengers might be able to raise a lot of money from small donors. But Mitch McConnell really, really wants to keep corporate donors aboard And during the Trump era, it was really hard to do that because there was such a disconnect between some of the core values of these companies and their CEOs, who you could probably categorize as political moderates or or Republicans, thinking, you know, the Lou Eisenstein's of the world and just RNC finance chairs going way back and, you know, their employees. And then on the other hand, the Republican base. So this has been building for, for quite a while, and it's come to a head now. And there's no easy answer for the corporations because boycotting doesn't seem to be a productive way to get anything done. Moving events seems to get everyone mad, including Stacey Abrams, yeah, who did not want the All-Star Game to leave Georgia for a couple of reasons, one of which is the potential cultural backlash that would ensue. And we all know every time somebody says that, you should disregard it. But um, I think it's a safe assumption to say that the Republican base the Trumpian part of the Republican base is motivated by the opposite of what the elites want you to do and a hypervigilance toward that. So you're seeing all of this come to play in, in what seems to be a fairly esoteric issue about corporations and campaign finance, but it really runs a lot more deep.
0: So, Lucy, it's natural to assume that corporations are responding to these issues, at least somewhat because there's demand from consumers and their customer base. But is this not like Republicans' sort of beloved free market in action?
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, this is another sort of um another episode where we see the ways in which the Republican Party has really moved away from traditional tenants, say, of the free market or the idea that. Uh, you know, money is speech and that soft money, that is uh, money from, say, corporations under Citizen United to um, to causes and political actors, that that's just like any regular person um, exercising their First Amendment, right? I mean, this is all part of sort of the, the kind of move towards something that almost resembles something that feels a little bit like authoritarianism in terms of the GOP's impulse to really believe it's their business. Th- this is not merely about whether or not what Coca-Cola's mm. relationship mm. to the Georgia legislature is about. This is fundamentally about what Coca-Cola's relationship to its consumers and its employees are about. And I think that the the realignment yeah. in which you know the Republican Party, once derided as the party of big business, now hates big business is interesting. I think that the underlying cause of some of these shifts is really something that we miss sometimes, and Mark alluded to this. But the the Black Lives Matter and sort of social justice movement of last summer that was a realization of something that's been happening for a long time. I spend a lot of time thinking about these relationships and sort of the move from corporate social responsibility to what companies talk about as shared value. Consumers really, really want companies to be responsible stewards of causes in the community. I mean, as as early as 2019, something like 80% of consumers were saying that they wanted companies to address social justice. And 60% of them were saying that they wanted, that they would be willing to boycott a company that, that didn't take a stand on these issues. And so that's a landmine for companies, as Mark alluded to, like what is the right tack? And certainly I think it'll probably even out. Um, but Really, it's a reflection of something that I think is amazing, which is that companies now have a role in the political discourse that goes beyond, uh, like, buying some jerk store member a steak dinner and lobbying on their regulatory issues. They have to be responsive to consumers who are uh, more able to get involved in and generate support for causes overnight And also have more ability to choose a competitor and leave that leave a a bad actor company, you know, a bad actor in their perception. That's why you saw Pepsi. You know, there was this rush last week. All these Republicans are like, I'm never drinking Coke again. (laughs) And then suddenly, like, is Pepsi okay? And then Pepsi issues a statement to show that they also are a responsible steward. The best Facebook threads this week are... Republicans hand-wringing over what soda they can drink now. It's like, it's my favorite. It's my favorite thing.
0: I think there's something actually really great about this development and sort of, you know, corporations engaging in the political process, especially, I mean, given this example seems to be very healthy for democracy. It's also consistent with the principles behind Republican support for Citizens United, right? So we should be talking about The divergence here, which which Mark mentioned, between corporate leaders and conservative political leaders, because it is for the same reason that they have touted, if money, as the rationale goes, is speech and corporations are people, and that's why it's acceptable for them to use their profits to play in politics, then why would actual speech be any different? And Mark, how should we square Republicans' love for corporate free speech as it pertains to campaign contributions with this shut up and dribble response?
1: It's not tenable. And I think that's why Mitch McConnell walked back his remarks very shortly after he made them. And of course, you speak about divergence, but there is also still convergence in the sense that corporations, for example, don't want a huge increase in their corporate taxes. But let's talk about, for example, Joe Biden's infrastructure bill. Corporations now are having to balance the fact that there is an enormous appetite among American people, and among their employees and among their consumers for significant investment in infrastructure. And they understand that there's broad support for using corporate taxes to pay for it. So you have corporations staking out what appears to be a middle ground and probably would be a number around which the Biden administration and maybe Republicans, some Republicans in the Senate converge on. But they're actively playing a role here while not playing a role that they're playing a bridging role here, which is a healthy development rather than a development that exacerbates political sectarianism. So I'm very curious to see as the infrastructure bill rolls along, as there are different changes to it, what role corporations play in nudging the sides together, which I think they're trying to do, because again, for them, obviously, infrastructure spending is helpful to corporations in almost every sense they don't want to be yeah. on the hook to pay for it but they realize that they might be and so they're doing their best to shape the landscape so that it comes out as favorably as as possible but if you're looking for an example of a salutary development in our politics and its relationship with corporations i think i think this is one i guess the bigger
0: question here that we ought to spend a moment thinking about and i'd really love to hear both of your thoughts on this but given how both how powerful and influential corporations are and really always have been, but but there seems to be this sort of political awakening in terms of the customer base and what they expect and how they expect these corporations to behave. To what extent should they be political actors and and why? What should the, the political role of corporations be in America? And I know that's a big question, but actually it's at the heart of this story. So Lucy, why don't you go first and then Mark, I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, well, I'm actually going to lean on my Long time interest and belief in free markets, and say that their role should be what their consumers and their employees and their stakeholders want it to be. I think that one of the big questions is to what degree, as this sort of shakes out, and I do believe it's going to shake out as companies taking a stand or playing a role in this sort of becomes more of the norm. Um, I think we're in a real inflection point with this. But one question will be. How genuine will it be? How much of it will be performative? (laughs) And what will consumers' tolerance for that be or employees' tolerance for that be? What will those consumers and employees and stakeholders' expectation be of a business's commitment to this be? Like, at what point do consumers demand so much that the brands that they buy from, patronize, support, uh, get involved to the point that it, it cuts into... P&L, right? So I think that that is the critical question. But I actually think we could sort of borrow a page out of sort of old style GOP playbook, which is let the market decide.
0: Mark, how do you think we should be thinking
1: about this? One of the trends we've noticed recently is that the more an issue becomes politicized or political, Uh, the more angry people become about it and the more messy everything becomes. So corporations have to be very careful. And when they decide how to engage in politics, they have to pick and choose their battles. They cannot and, and should not engage in every fashionable political battle that comes down the line. Going back to what Lucy counseled, some of it has to do with precisely the political issues that are most important to their stakeholders and incidentally, in terms of their stakeholders, their employees and their consumers' social concerns as a separate stakeholding mechanism have risen in salience, certainly, over maybe the past five or 10 years as compared to other parts of the stakeholding empire. But corporations generally should continue to be, I think, a step removed from the day daily sturm and of politics. It's not good for them because it puts them into battles that they can't win. And it isn't certainly technically the role that they that they play in society. I have a feeling, again, that so a lot of what we're seeing now with Georgia, with some other issues related to particularly fundamental issues about the integrity of our election system, legitimacy that people look upon it with, are corporations, again, testing the waters, following social proof, trying to figure out what's the right way, what's the wrong way to do this. We're in a kind of a liminal stage where corporations are figuring out what the landscape is. I have a feeling that they're going to settle back on the type of engagement that Lucy talks about. They're not going to play in every single political battle, nor nor should they, but they'll decide and they're smart and they have plenty of analysis and and re- researchers and polling and data to back it up what's safe and useful to engage in and not. Look for example at Delta in Georgia, Delta came out with a scathing statement against Georgia's election reforms or election bill. Republicans said, "Well, we're going to take away a lucrative tax break." They threatened that immediately, but then the state legislative session ended without them doing anything. So there was brinksmanship there. Sides testing each other out. Right. Delta probably learned a lesson. Republicans in the state of Georgia might have also learned a lesson about threatening a company as important as as, as Delta. So there's lessons that both sides are learning here. And it really is a fascinating development. I hope in the end that corporations continue to have a moderating force on some of the edges of these really critical issues and can actually serve as a bridge in some ways. Corporations will always worry about their bottom lines and have particular views on on tax cuts and on certain economic issues that you could culturally associate with one party or the other. But now they're Playing a bridging role in perhaps some social and cultural issues in a way that they hadn't before.
2: I agree with everything that Mark just said, with one very slight caveat, which is that I don't think corporations are currently equipped in the way that they will be in the future to handle these things. That's why you saw blowback that Coca Cola and Delta. Did not do this early enough, Um, and so behind the scenes, what you're going to see is, I think, a massive shift in what it means to be a marketing team of a Fortune 100 company, and how they even address these issues in an ongoing way, in terms of how they collect data about how their customers feel, and I think that, and how they use those insights, and so I think you'll see a real fundamental change to. marketing and advertising and public relations fields as companies also come to terms with this brave new world.
1: A full employment bill for political intelligence consultants then, essentially, (laughs) because all of these companies are going to need many of them.
0: Yeah. Right. All right. Let's move to our next story, which is about vaccine hesitancy among white evangelicals. So far, the effort to inoculate the American people against COVID-19 has really been on a remarkable trajectory. Earlier this week, uh, President Biden moved up his own deadline by which governors have to open vaccine eligibility to all adults. It was May 1st, and now it's April 19th, which is just 10 days from this episode. By the end of this weekend, the U.S. will be approaching nearly half of all adults having at least their first shot of a COVID-19 vaccine. And in just the last week, we've averaged 3 million shots in arms every single day. Now, many of you will remember that in a recent episode of The Roundup, we looked at polling data that showed vaccine skepticism was decreasing in just about every demographic group, except one, white Republicans. And in a story earlier this week, The New York Times profiled that skepticism among white evangelicals specifically. So there are about 41 million white evangelical adults in the U.S., and a Pew study in late February found that about 45% of them would not get vaccinated against COVID-19. Now, while political polarization is certainly a factor, there are a lot of dynamics in play here. There's general skepticism and distrust toward scientific institutions and science uh, among white Christians generally. Some people believe that they will be kept healthy without the vaccine, thanks to miraculous healing or divine intervention, um, you know, especially among charismatic Christians. But, you know, there's also an international angle to this story, which is, you know, in this New York Times story, they mention a Uganda hospital that had reportedly received 5,000 vaccine doses, but had only been able to administer about 400 because of the hesitancy of the heavily evangelical population. And if anyone is not uh, yet familiar with the very tight relationship between, American evangelicalism and how it is exported to uh, to African countries especially Uganda that's something you should look into but you know zooming back out Mark we saw hesitancy decline among several groups when leaders within them made an effort to educate their peers and their, their, their communities or constituencies about vaccination. Why hasn't this happened successfully with evangelicals? Because there have been some who have, uh, who have advocated for and actually received the vaccine and
1: publicized, um, getting it. Why isn't, why isn't that working? Franklin Graham being one of them, yeah, um, right. most, most notably, and many others. And of course, the Biden administration, although it's, its truck with white evangelicals is not particularly strong, recognizes that the call from the pulpit is, um, is quite influential. I would take Occam's razor here and say that we have politicized or gone through an era, the pandemic era, where virtually every medical decision or social intervention was politicized and politicized in a way that created just hard, angry divisions. And this is still one of them. And the faction most likely to oppose what the dominant faction says is the right thing to do has been all along white evangelicals, perhaps Christian nationalists in the United States. Over time, hopefully that will decrease. You might also see an effect where when asked about whether they'll take the vaccine, people will say they won't because they want to show social solidarity and because they see stories about how people like them are refusing to take the vaccine. But when it comes down to it and they see everything opening up in their location and they see that people who were Formally freaked out about leaving their houses, or starting to leave their house, and people who were responding to them politically are doing so less. They'll feel more comfortable taking it. I hope that's the case. Yeah. I worry, like you do, about Christians around the world and about places where the vaccine is, you know, yet to arrive in, in significant numbers, or where there's significant hesitancy, and there's not a significant counter pressure to take it. From other other sections of society. So I yeah, worry um, and, and, and the, the point about particularly the global effects of hesitancy, yeah. I think is something that we can't pay enough attention to, not simply because we all don't want to get COVID again in some new variant, but because of the just the, the simple moral issue of, of millions of unnecessary people dying.
0: And the likelihood of another pandemic, which is which is, you know, quite like we've we've been told it's going to happen again. And so it would be in humanity's best interest for us to work out the kinks here right now. Lucy, let's talk about vaccine passports for a minute. What does it say that the most vaccine skeptical and covid skeptical generally seem to also be adamantly against any kind of vaccine passport for travel, for large events? Uh, you know, etc. You know, a completely voluntary method for choosing who we associate with would seem to be, you know, a relatively conservative approach to this issue. How are you thinking about this?
2: Well, I I think that you're alluding to something that's right, Ron, which is that vaccine passports should seem like a conservative idea. It's mostly about a private interaction between, say, a business and its patrons. Um, But I think it reflects a theme that we've talked about a lot, which is the Republican Party moving away from conservative principles or so-called principles that used to be really foundational to really prioritizing culture wars. The entire debacle over vaccine passports is just culture wars. And the irony is that they're really stepping in it um, in various ways. So Ron DeSantis, who is vaccine passport critic in chief, he issued an executive uh, order last week that really got at this idea that private businesses would be subjected to this. Um, and, And he kind of, they tried to add teeth to this by saying that there would be punishment for private businesses trying to carry out vaccine passports uh, in the form of being denied state and local aid or contracts. Um, And the cruise industry, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who goes on cruises, Mm -hmm. like white Republicans, (laughs) Uh, the cruise industry has said like, oh my God, you're creating this impossible situation for us. How will we start having cruises again if we can't check people's vaccine status. And if you want to be convinced of that, watch the recent documentary, The Last Cruise, because it's terrifying what happens on cruise ships when you have not gotten people's health in order. Um, So you see it taking a lot of different forms. I mean, in a state like Utah, the governor there, who people think of as kind of a libertarian-y guy, he focused on vaccine passports, Spencer Cox, just to do with uh, the government. Um, and the government's ability to issue or require vaccine passports, that seems like a pretty defensible system or program, even if you disagree with it. Um, He signed a bill that said that. But in other states, like in Texas, like in Florida, the vaccine passports are just completely out of step with the idea of letting the market decide, of letting Individual consumers decide what kind of restaurants or concert halls they want to frequent or how to run your business. So it's just another episode of so-called conservative principles turned on their head.
0: Yeah. You mean opposition to vaccine passports seems at odds with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and by the way you mentioned Florida and DeSantis and uh, I think coming up the RNC has an event there uh, scheduled where they're going to have everybody tested um uh, before they're allowed admittance to the to the event um which is seemingly at odds with DeSantis's position but Mark thinking more broadly how do you think vaccine hesitancy among white evangelicals it has the potential to exacerbate you know, the existing deepening divide, the rural-urban divide that we've seen trending for a long time. How could this worsen that divide?
1: The least likely religious group to support business closures during the pandemic were mm. white evangelicals. Mm. This is, again, so I'm not sure how much of this is, is new. I think some of it depends, again, on how much Republicans who are running for office who are demagoguing this issue, like Ron DeSantis, make political decisions that create dumb new regulations out of this, that could harden the divide. Or whether this kind of goes away as the pandemic ebbs and pretty much everyone kind of realizes they have to get vaccinated, even if they don't admit to it, and it kind of dissolves as, as an issue. So it really does depend. But what I find so objectionable about what Ron DeSantis did about vaccine passports is, of course, that he knows better, Mm -hmm. and he does it anyway. He knows, for example, that if you're from another country and you want to come to the United States, you have to have 14 immunizations and be able to prove it. If you're from the United States flying to a bunch of other countries before the pandemic, you have to be able to prove it. If you're going to public schools in virtually every state, you have to be able to prove that you're, you know, you've been vaccinated, your parents have to be able to prove it. This is not and of course, that's not new. That stuff is not new. It's not new, right. and and it, it is true that 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 white evangelicals have been at the forefront of opposition to at least school vaccination mandates as well. So again, this is part of a long stemming, a long stemming cultural issue. Speaking of stems, the one thing I, I do want to point out yeah. about the hesitancy here is some of it does have to do with a mis a misapprehension of the role that. Stem cells.
0: Yeah, you please please unpack this. Well,
1: there, a a lot of medical research comes from lab-created stem cell lines that were derived from aborted fetuses many, many years ago. There's a, I think, thirteen or fourteen lines that were created many years ago that are just producing medical breakthrough after medical breakthrough. Abortion, obviously, is a I mean, this is a binding issue for white evangelicals. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine was developed from one of these stem cell lines. The other vaccines in use were not. So, And of course, people don't have the choice so much in what vaccine they get. And as the supply of vaccine outpaces regular demand, perhaps it'll be fairly easy to go to evangelicals who are using the stem cell objection. To say, I uh, this is just against what I believe. This is a, from an aborted fetus. To say, okay, well, this vaccine isn't, so you can use this vaccine. Again, we're we're not we're not there yet, but that could be a potential so, solution that we would just see happen happen normally. So,
0: you know, I think the bigger question here, underlying all of this, uh, is is how how we should think about the tension between. America's legitimate public health interests and religious beliefs, just in general. We're we're obviously in an inflection point where that tension is being scrutinized every day, but it isn't new and there is some inherent tension here. And I I wonder how you both are thinking about how we've arrived at the status quo and whether or not it is tenable going forward.
2: I mean, I think that we have to decide as a country. how much credence we pay to the religious right um, as a force in our politics uh, at a time when fewer and fewer Americans are religious. Um, And and that goes beyond, that, That that is not to say that people should not pursue whatever way of life they want, but at what point do some of those views come into the public square in a way that really has an impact on other people? and really has an impact on other people's ability to get back to normal. And I think this goes beyond religious liberty. I think that this just goes beyond whether or not as a country, we think that some areas are more important than individual rights. And I think that we see a lot of these issues in recent years. I think climate is one of them, Uh, but the pandemic has been another perfect example of this Uh, does someone's irrational fear of getting a vaccine or opposition to a vaccine or opposition to vaccine passports, does that trump the rest of our sort of ability to get back to life as normal to restore basic public health and I think that's a cultural question. It's also a question that we'll probably see come up in the courts in the fallout of vaccine passports. Um and and I think actually the courts have been pretty clear that collective interests do trump people's individual whims or <laughs> desires here. I think we have all kinds of the reason that people are used to submitting their kids' vaccination records to schools without objection is that for more than 100 years, we have had legal precedent. That kind of requirement is okay in several cases. And so I think that you obviously have to tease out the cultural component from, say, legal precedents and and what the fallout will be. But in a country that is increasingly less religious than ever... Uh, not members of a church, you know, not people whose faith based communities are at the center of their lives. How much political power are we going to continue to extend to religious communities, especially the Christian right, when often their agendas and their sort of viewpoints are so at odds with? everyday Americans but in a way that goes beyond just having different views that goes into the, that goes to the point of impacting the rest of our ability to uh, pursue happiness and have an American way of life that includes liberties like getting back to normal
0: yeah yeah mark how are you thinking about this
1: well looking at the way the supreme court dealt with some of the cases for example, that churches brought against state health authorities early in the pandemic and the Supreme Court tried to split the question a little bit or made a very Solomonic uh, <laughs> to use the, the biblical <laughs> metaphor nice one <laughs> decision thank you that's Hebrew high school for you the, the Supreme Court essentially held that churches are not exempt from state health regulations nor can states single out the type of activity that is fundamental to churches and specifically make rules saying that churches can't do X without making similar rules for other businesses, which seems to me to be you know, a fairly reasonable compromise and something that a conservative Supreme Court, which is what we have, probably the best that a conservative Supreme Court would produce for, for people who are, who are upset the court has a conservative direction. I'm fully willing and think it's important to engage people's vaccine hesitancy in good faith Mm -hmm. and have empathetic conversations with them and listen to them and understand where they're coming from. Where I draw the line is when politicians who know better act in bad faith in ways that simply use the cudgel of uh, religion or the cudgel of saying, oh, you're crimping somebody's faith to create unnecessary burdens on everyone else. And again, as hard as it is, sometimes as a reporter or as a someone who tries to look at the public sphere with open eyes, we have to make distinctions between who is acting in good faith and who is acting in bad faith.
0: Yeah. You mentioned something earlier on about a lot of these behaviors and a lot of these viewpoints that are being imposed on others has a lot less to do, in fact, maybe nothing to do with legitimate principle, but a lot more to do with sort of positionality and being opposed to, you know, whatever the elites say you ought to be doing or ought to be. This is actually is is sort of an example of a collective oppositional defiance disorder as opposed to um, rational
1: thinking. It is. And of course, looking even among the sort of the theological tenets of evangelical Christianity, there is almost a badge of honor to be gained from being seen as oppositional to what elite culture or the elites say.
0: Um,
1: And especially if the elites say, you're wrong, you're stupid, how dare you do this? The more angry the elites get, the more solidarity you feel with your fellow feeling travelers, and the more convinced you are that you're onto some hidden truth that, that they don't see. So this gets at a lot of very sort of deep grooves in how we've evolved as, as humanity as well. I don't think we can ignore that when figuring out how to solve these problems as, as a society. And that's one reason why I tend to get upset at people who are just constantly beating on white evangelicals for being anti-science or being stupid, being all these things. I just, to me, that doesn't, not only is it, it is counterproductive. It doesn't move the needle and it provides the exact fuel that they're looking for to continue to amplify and solidify their opposition to common sense public health measures.
0: Yeah. And Lucy, we've sort of merged, uh, you know, Republican politicians and operators have been successful at merging the elites, whoever they are, right, with science and institutions that are looking out for, you know, in this case, public health.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the big joke and also tragedy of the current moment we're in when it comes to the Republican Party. As you mentioned, rich Republican donors attending an RNC retreat at Mar-a-Lago are all going to be showing proof as as means of entry that they do not have COVID. Right. right? And yeah. so, you know, there used to be this sort of, there was sort of the the 90s idea of like limousine liberals, right? Like these coastal elites who have never walked a day in your shoes. I mean, that's sort of in essence what's going on with the Republican Party now. And we talked about this a few weeks ago in the context of Republican consultants and operatives washing their hands of the capital insurrectionist saying, like, well, I don't you'd have to be a real idiot to show up to that. Uh and so it is like, you know, culture wars for thee, but not for me privately, right? Like they're all getting vaccinated, right? Uh, but if they can continue to stoke the flames of discontent yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by doing this, and it's actually really dangerous here because they are actually doing something that encourages people to not protect themselves against a Virus that could kill them or kill a loved one. So it's really beyond.
0: Yeah, it's <laughs> I mean, exploitative. People are going to die. Yeah, it's exploitative. It is and it's exploitative. Dangerous. Yeah,
2: but there's one little piece of information that I think is hard to square with all of this, and and maybe it's not, but that I have been really interested in, which is that last month, Frank Luntz, longtime Republican pollster, runs focus groups. If you've watched Fox News, you've you've seen Frank Luntz. He did a focus group of white Republicans, Trump supporters, the kinds of people we're talking about, uh, on their attitudes toward vaccines and what would move them? These were not anti-vaxxers, right? We we should not conflate people who are opposed to getting the COVID vaccine with being anti-vaxxer because they're just not, and they're not that overlapping. Um, and the whole goal was to figure out what spokespeople would encourage these people to get vaccinated and it was not Donald Trump. It was like it would be hearing from their own doctor. And in that focus group, they had Tom Frieden, who's the former CDC director under Obama, come and speak to them. And that moved the needle for them. I mean, like an Obama-appointed public health figure. And so I'm hopeful that there seems to be a slight inroad with this audience of people who just want facts from their doctors. And so, you know, ahead of the expanded eligibility later this month, maybe there's a window and, and an entry point for really elevating the voices of people in their own communities, of the doctors and public health officials in their own communities to solicit them to get vaccinated. Um, but that hopefulness could also just be my Bill Gates microchip talking, I don't know.
1: <laughs> you know, no, it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a reasonable, we, we know that, pe- that the closer you are to somebody uh, in their community and in their, you know, in their position of social status, unfortunately, even um, people uh, of the, who have the same skin color, the more likely you are to listen to them and believe something they say persuasively in, in this very sort of balkanized age. So pastors certainly are one thing, but local doctors who treat these men and women are probably gonna have to play an outsized role as well.
0: Yeah. It also just occurred to me that we should have a conversation sometime about as we're having all of this dialogue around misinformation and how it is spread and the role that, you know, big tech has for, you know, monitoring lies on their platforms, we ought to at some point discuss the role and responsibility of political actors both committees and politicians who spread misinformation, especially when it has massive public health implications, like in this case. But that is a conversation for another time. Okay, Facebook. Speaking of misinformation, a completely different story that is also going to impact millions of people at an individual level. It has now been widely reported that the personal data of 533 million Facebook users has been leaked online. And this leak affects at least 30 million Americans' Facebook accounts. The data includes phone numbers, Facebook IDs, full names, locations, birth dates, bios, and in some cases, even email addresses. There are plenty of threads to pull on here, but I want to consider this in the shadow of the ever increasing drumbeat to regulate big tech. So, first, Mark, how will the failures? to secure massive troves of user data. And we should note, of course, this is not the first time there's been a massive leak or otherwise publicization of user data from Facebook. How is this going to influence the conversation around uh, regulating big tech companies, if at all? And should we think about uh, a U.S. version of the European GDPR uh, being on the horizon?
1: One thing that's still not clear about this particular data breach is, how exactly it was pulled off because Facebook itself hasn't been terribly clear on it, whether the scraping tools that it gives to companies to take this data, quote unquote, legitimately, which many users are still fairly unaware of, um, was misused in this case. Um, And whether, as Facebook says, because this data set for the most part, or for 99% of it, had already been in another breach disclosed, they had an obligation to disclose it again. It brings up actually a, a couple of issues, which to me are somewhat counterintuitive to the idea that, at least in this case, Facebook did something wrong. By the way, just to answer your question, do I think this this, this does not help their case right. <laughs> when they're okay. trying to fight off um, uh, Congress? Because it just gives Congress just another arrow to throw at them. But this is the way that I think about about data leaks and and things like this. Part of this is we're in April of 2021, for 20 years, we've been having and seeing leak after leak after hack after attack after misuse of scraping tools to the point where it's background noise. Mm -hmm. And yet, and we have, by the way, the tools and the technologies to help individuals very quickly remedy these problems. But outside a small subset of even Twitter users who are motivated by their jobs or by their professions to spend the time to use these tools, we're still fairly indifferent culturally to this. And we don't have, for example, central cyber governance. We don't have a sense of what needs to be disclosed because what it's important to disclose certain things and not other things. Um, we don't have any standards for that. We have no government or for frankly, private or public sector or even advocacy sector coming up with a set of standards for it. So we have just again, uh, in in essence, another drop in the bucket of in terms of breaches, this wasn't terribly intrusive. But I just go back to the fact that of the hundreds of millions of people involved in this, most of them probably when they initially gave Facebook permission to use this data for commercial purposes, had no idea that they were doing it. And now, even though they might care, might not realize that 30 times the amount of data that was held in the Facebook breach is already out about there. So to put it in, in that context, this is a, a failure of civil society, it's a failure of tech platforms collectively, and it's a failure of of government. As much as it is a you know, just a, a discrete failure of Facebook, it's also a failure of of human beings who are connected and engaged online to be more digitally competent. I don't necessarily blame them. It's a failure of them because we just don't prioritize it, digital competence and digital hygiene as a skill. If we did, that that might be different. That's kind of where I, I see this. Facebook should have said something earlier. Absolutely. What should they have said? Honestly, I have no idea because yeah. I don't know. Oops, we did it again. I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or also, here's what, there's nothing you, you, we did this, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. You know, yeah. good luck. It happened. And you know, we're sorry. Which is fine, but it also just contributes to this background noise where, okay, another data breach and there's nothing that I can do. Or so therefore, as a consumer, what am I to think about this? We need there should be breach notification laws that are built into for how cyber insurance works. Absolutely. We don't have those though. We don't have those even for the type of breach that created the solar wind hacks. Um, we don't have laws that in our national security sector, if there are certain violations of the integrity of the defense industrial-based companies, they're companies that work with the Department of Defense, they don't have to notify the government yet. It's kind of absurd that that's the case. So we we have none of that structure in place. It doesn't surprise me that Facebook is a little bit confused about uh, what do we say. So do, I just want to go back to
0: your to your comment about sort of culturally we haven't built up a, you know, essentially enough, uh, we don't care enough, right? But I, as a user, and I would imagine that this is the case for many, many people, I get really upset about this individually. I don't like it, right? This feels terrible to me. And it has less to do with not caring and I think more to do with feeling powerless against yeah. these hacks, right? It, like, I care a lot. When I, especially, and even now, now, you know, when you go in and you sign up for a new service, whatever, you scroll through that endless end user license agreement, the EULA that everybody sees, and you click accept, right? I have no idea what I've just accepted, but I know that I'm about to be completely exploited, right? I know that. I know what they're doing with it. But I don't have a choice. And when something does happen to my data, I have very little recourse, Maybe there will be a class action lawsuit that maybe I'll have to pay attention to my emails for, right? Maybe I'll see it. Maybe I won't. And if I, you know, but basically I'm powerless to do anything against it. And so I feel like culturally that's more of where we are than, than apathetic. I don't know what,
1: what you think about that. I think the, the indifference generally is on behalf of elites, um, as mm. opposed to people who get really exercised yeah. for it. And that's why I do think we will see some version of the European GDPR in the United States. I think it's absolutely inevitable to, you know, borrow that awful metaphor, though, you know, not only the whole I have the the horses sort of left the barn. I mean, the barn is kind of burned down yeah. and the yeah. and the you know, <laughs> the field um on which it's there has been, you know, gentrified and is now suburbs. It's just there is so much about how we interact daily that gives away so much of things that we might in a mindful moment say, why am I giving this to somebody for free? Right. Um, Right. and, And yes, it absolutely makes us angry. What makes us angry is precisely that although we have the tools and technology to do things about it, it's really hard to use even a password manager. Migrating your passwords from however, you know, system, whatever system you've set up now, to one of the password managers, which I would recommend as a security yep. measure, yep. takes a lot of time. Yeah. And it it shouldn't. I mean, it just shouldn't. But we, the indifference to me, when I say indifference, I mean the indifference is to the experience of users and their security concerns over the experience of efficiency and ease of use for a product. And that is still, even though we talk about it endlessly, it's still the case. And it's it contributes I think to that just sense of anger, like, what, what the hell are they doing? And what the hell can I do about it? If I can do nothing about it, then, I mean, then what the hell are you doing?
0: Yeah. So Lucy, you have thought a lot about this uh, because you were a founder of a tech company specializing in data and voter data specifically. What type of recourse do or should anyway, individuals have when tech companies fail as stewards of our sensitive data? And to Mark's point about the barn being, you know, burnt down at this point, like, are we eventually going to find ourselves in a world where everybody's information is everywhere anyway? And and you know, there's you know, no such thing as privacy anymore. Um, what do? You, how are you thinking about this?
2: Well, I think we might kind of already be there from the perspective of most people. One of the things that the Facebook leak brings up that is kind of interesting is that the data entailed in this leak is not data that would be hard to get in the market right to to some degree what people think of as their privacy that's they have that privacy because it's cost prohibitive and just not just not efficient in many cases for marketers whomever to go out and buy that data but you can absolutely buy that data um and not to get too wonky but an interesting sort of piece of the Facebook data leak and and something that defenders of Facebook have said in it is like, well, the way that the vulnerability that led to this leak probably occurred because there was a vulnerability in terms of what you could scrape through a means by which you could pull down Data about individuals. And in order to get that data, you had to then, like you, whether you're doing this via people know about things like APIs, that's an easy way to think about this. But the way that you would pull down this data is by going and sort of like pinging Facebook's database with phone numbers of people. Like uploading Um, your own contacts. You know, like, right. Like, okay, here's my list of 50,000, you know, first name, last name, phone number. I, I have these people in my system. Now you tell me what you know about them, right? That is a super, super common transaction in the world of political data, marketing, advertising. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's obviously bad. Leaks are bad. But the leaks often just expose what the kind of structure of data is that companies have about you. And I don't blame people for... I don't think that it's their fault that they often end up having their data used in ways they don't understand. Obviously, we need to have a reckoning about terms of service, ULAs, all of this. Think about what kind of we think of as fundamental rights around your own data are. You know, maybe that will take the form of something that looks like GDPR. Many American companies have already, that that operate in many countries, have already kind of begun to operate in the GDPR framework because it's just easier um, in terms of interacting with your audience base that spans many countries. So that's, that's possible. But I think that culturally, people do need to realize that your interaction with services online, you know, Ron, you really, I think, said this without even realizing it when you were talking about your perception about Facebook. You said, I'm a Facebook user. That is right you are not Facebook's customer (laughs) when you go online to look at photos of your family members. You are actually the product that they are selling, right? So if you have an interaction with a service online that is free, (laughs) right? Or the price is so minimal that it's a no-brainer, you should probably assume that the way that that company is making money is on some other kind of transaction that you have no idea about. And so Facebook does sell all of this data that people feel bothered by in the context of a leak, but it's actually just a sort of window into all of the transactions happening all the time between Facebook and advertisers, campaigns, any number of types of actors where they are selling data about you down to a very, very granular level, like your current relationship status or how you behave on their website. And not just on their website, on any website that has a Facebook tracking pixel. And so some of this is sort of just where we are as a culture because consumers also really love personalization online. And when they don't receive a personalized experience from brands, they act irritated. You, I mean, you. this is like so common. You hear people say something like, why would I be getting an ad for this when I'm this other kind of person? It's so ingrained in us that we expect to log onto our computers or our smartphones or whatever, and get all of this content aimed at us because we, in the back of our minds, know (laughs) that that's what our interactions are online. So I I say that as a way to say sort of, you know, I don't think that Facebook is going away. I don't think that consumers' habits are gonna change dramatically, but it's just kind of useful to kind of think for a moment and bring back to the foreground that this data leak really just reveals it's, it's just a window in the kinds of product transactions Facebook is having all the time when it comes to selling our data.
0: Mark, I saw you nodding there a couple of times, I'd, uh, but I'd also like to know from your perspective what the national security implications of this might be and if our foreign adversaries you know, are able to obtain and collect this kind of personal data on individual Americans what's that going to mean are we going to see more tailored disinformation campaigns and what else should be how how else should we be thinking about this from a disinformation campaign perspective and and the the sort of meddling of of our adversaries in american society
1: from a national security perspective this particular event has probably negligible consequences given how many other national security cyber related events that provide a lot more information but obviously, the more information a foreign adversary can gather about you, the more tailored, if they want to attack you directly via a socially engineered attack, they you know they they can use that. But this information, as Lucy says, is is out there anyway. Just to give you an example of something that that you might not think about, but which could be a great national security or or, or an actual national security issue. Let's say you're you're you know you're you're China. And um a lot of activists are using Clubhouse to talk about issues that are forbidden in or you know part of the diaspora of, of, of Chinese diaspora, for example. And you are the Ministry of State Security, and you're going to just start collecting voice prints off of Clubhouse so that you can target potential dissidents. Um, I, I actually, this was brought up to me by a former, uh, Russian spy who said, Oh my God, like, can you imagine what the FSB or the SVR are doing with all of the elites, the technological elites, people who work for defense companies who are now going on Clubhouse and, you know, for all sorts of different reasons. So, um, w- one of the reasons, just get, to move this back to what Lucy was saying, one of the reasons I I encourage people to think and have discussions about these breaches is precisely because two things seem to be true. One is, as Lucy says, this is people's consumer habits are not going to change and people are going to want two conflicting things, which is somehow more autonomy and more agency over their own data but also more personalized experiences. They 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 really they can't have both. What they can have is a better understanding of where the data comes from and how it's used. And so over time perhaps when we get to a framework to make better decisions we we can do that. so i think that's where that's where the sweet spot is. but lucy you're absolutely right there is the, the, there are conflicting impulses in what consumers say they want and what they actually want out of events like this. and it's very frustrating for companies who are constantly saying okay well you understood you, you security is important and i think it's extremely important but you know if we relinquish control of this, you're not going to have ease of access to this particular feature, which you use all the time. If they're just not compatible. The problem for me is that these trade-offs haven't been made explicit in advance. Whereas I think we need to make them a lot more explicit than we've made them. That to me is where the the ethical and kind of moral impulse is.
0: Now that we're up to speed on the major stories of the week, what stories are you following that may have flown under the radar or that we might have missed, but will influence our politics in some way, even in a way we might not expect? Lucy, do you want to start us off?
2: Well, it seems like the last election cycle is barely behind us, but I think that it's pretty clear when you look all around the country that many candidates running in 2022 are already off to the races. And something I know you've talked a lot about on this podcast, Ron, not only because of your particular expertise on it, but because of how knowledgeable or how how vitally important it is, is this question of what exactly state legislatures are doing around issues like redistricting, how that process happens. Um, And I want to flag something else for your listeners to look at, which is who are the people not getting national attention who have already declared their intent to run for Secretary of State or another office in at the state level that oversees elections. So of course it's super important to keep up our attention and keep the heat on state legislatures around issues like voting rights bills or lack of voting rights bills going through legislatures. But in several states, including Arizona, um, states that are undergoing a political shift, um, many candidates have already declared their intention to run for Secretary of State, including people who are known to be basically Trump cheerleaders, insurrectionists themselves, um, sympathetic to insurrectionists, insurrectionist adjacent. you can call them whatever you want the 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 upshot is these are people who are not friendly toward uh, free and fair elections. And they're not hiding it, and they are jumping into secretaries of state races with a very clear intent um, of, of how they plan to suppress and tamper, really, with voting um, in coming so elections. So this is, yes. look up who's running in yep. in your state. <laughs> yep. um, if it seems like your state is, um, is going to be in good shape, then look at what's going on in the states of... Your friends and relatives, and people in your life, and alert them to this. Um, but just as the Democratic Party really, really missed the boat on state legislative races last cycle in a way that is going to have probably bad implications for redistricting, a reminder I know the focus is often on national politics, but check out who is throwing their hat into the ring in uh, secretaries of state races and sort of election official races.
0: That is so important. That's a really good story. Thank you,
1: Mark. That was a, an excellent way to tee off what I'm about to say. And Ron, I heard your your withered sigh in the middle of that, and yeah. you're about to do this again when oh, I god. mentioned exactly. Lynn Wood <sighs> is running to be the next chair. Oh, I, oh my god! Of the remind South Carolina. Who, remind everybody who recall, Lynn Wood is. Lynn Wood um, was. A key proponent of some of the most dangerous and bizarre conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. And um he also he used to be a uh, a a fairly noted and high profile um sort of First Amendment uh attorney for a bunch of different clients. He represented John Bonet Ramsey's family and 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 many others, but for for a bunch of reasons, um just took a sort of a, a hard turn in his in his life may have let go of the balloons at some point and um you know managed to probably help get democrats elected to the senate in georgia because he was part of those encouraging republicans to treat the senate runoff as illegitimate and you know but he has now moved to south carolina and the reason why i bring this up is because the south carolina republican party has seen In the past couple of weeks, an enormous turnover from Trump supporting precinct chairs who have experience in running elections to Trump fanatic precinct chairs who have absolutely no experience in running elections, but who are now taking control over the machinery of the party. You're seeing this in state after state after state. I think anyone who believes that the 2020 election was illegitimate and is in a position of political power, um, is in a position to influence others going forward. And I don't think that's a healthy thing. And I worry. And there is a chance that Lynn Wood will be elected the next chair of the Republican Party of South Carolina. Something to continue to watch.
0: Watch this space. Watch it very closely, especially if you're listening to us from South Carolina, but pay attention to your local officials, folks, and who's running to fill those seats. So my story today is a bit of a shot chaser, and the shot is Arizona lawmakers overriding the governor's veto of an anti-trans health care bill, which is problematic on its own, but becomes even more egregious when you realize that, politically speaking, these lawmakers in the Republican caucus, after the governor had vetoed the bill, had every bit of political cover they needed in order to not vote for it again and override the governor's veto. But they chose to do that anyway, which just makes this so much more reprehensible. And this bill, by the way, would essentially prohibit healthcare workers from providing gender-affirming health care treatments to trans people. We should note also that one of the Republicans who didn't vote to override the governor's veto is actually a physician. So the chaser here is that Caitlyn Jenner wants to be California's next Republican governor and has actually already hired Trump consultants to help her figure that run out. And so I'm, first of all, you know, disgusted with the actions, uh, of the Arkansas lawmakers, you know, especially because if you're, if you're an Arkansas lawmaker and this bill gets vetoed, then at least if you went along with the caucus to, you know, with the vote the first time you had political cover to say, okay, the governor vetoed it. And, uh, and so now I cannot vote to override the veto. You have a little bit of political cover to walk back your original vote. And they didn't do that. They voted to override the veto, but set that aside. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch Republicans dance around this uh, to figure out where they are going to draw the line on trans people. Um, and if if enough of them get behind Caitlyn Jenner's run, uh, is now the line going to be, yes, you can be trans and in the Republican Party and we support you, but you can't actually have any medical procedures or interventions that might uh, enable you to um, to live your life in in the gender. Anyway, this is uh, emotional and really frustrating uh, to watch, Uh, but that is my my story. Pay attention to how Republicans decide to position themselves um, and the rhetoric that you see around trans people, because obviously this is not consistent and it's um, purely positional. Before I let you go,
1: where can people find you on the internet? Mark? Twitter is probably the best way, Mark Ambinder, M-A-R-C-A-M-B-I-N-D-E-R on Twitter. And that links to my, there's a link to my link tree, which link to everything else there. So Mark Ambinder on Twitter. Cool. Lucy?
2: You can find me on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell.
0: And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you, Lucy and Mark, for taking the time to have this conversation today. And thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you have questions or advice for us, or if there's a topic you'd like to see covered in a future episode of The Roundup, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to help us grow and continue the fight to protect our democracy, it would also help us tremendously if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, because it helps us rise in the rankings so that new listeners are more likely to find the show. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.